This is also your first 4th of July as an American citizen. It is my first 4th of July as an American citizen, yeah. Are you going to just get so wasted tomorrow? No. Carla, that's what an American does. (laughs) What's that? Are we recording? Oh, we record as soon as we sit down. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Do you feel patriotic this this 4th of July? Super patriotic. Are you tempted to get any type of patriotic tattoo, like a flag or an eagle? No. Or the Constitution? No. I do want to see the Constitution before they take it out. Oh, they're taking it out? Yeah, there was reports about a year, year and a half ago that um, it's fading, even though they're doing all the protection and stuff, and so they're not going to be on the, the, the true Constitution at some point will not be displayed anymore. It'll be like a replica. It's a conspiracy. They're just trying to get rid of it. No, they're just trying to hide it. Now they're trying to get rid of it, get rid of the Constitution. I don't think that's the case. Yes, it is, friend. No. We're going to become a communist nation after they get rid of that. Yeah, that's all it takes. <laughs> that's all it is. One piece of old paper. We're going to have to hire Nicolas Cage to go find it again. God, what has he been up to these days? Um, He, oh, what did I just see? He was in the Spider-Man, Into the Spider-Verse. Yeah, that's... Yeah, that's the last thing I saw him in. Did a good job. Yeah. Didn't talk much, but yeah. Yeah, but the Spider-Man noir character was pretty funny. The best thing with him was like, is this purple? No. Is this, is this blue? <laughs> no. He goes, I'm going to take this back with me. I don't understand it, but I will. <laughs> <laughs> I could relate to him when he was, when he was, was saying <laughs> sure that. I'm like, could. oh, my colorblind brother, I understand. <laughs> it's so nice to sit here and not be sweating through yeah. our shirts within 30 seconds of right. recording. <laughs> Oh, and I, I don't think I told you that we did get another sponsor besides Nintendo. Uh, Lip Smackers. Do you remember Lip Smackers? Is that maybe, you know, you may have missed out on that. In like elementary school, junior high, Lip Smackers were chapsticks that had tons of different flavors. Coca-Cola, root beer, bubblegum, dreamsicle. Americans are weird. Yeah. And like people, I think every kid who grew up in the 90s maybe had an experience of having a lip smacker chapstick or maybe someone in their household and grabbing it as a little kid and smelling it and thinking god that really does smell like chocolate there's no way it can smell like chocolate and not taste like chocolate and like you taste it a little bit yeah it's it's not chocolate it's wax it's definitely it's definitely not meant to be consumed simply (laughs) meant to be spread amongst the lips explains a lot yeah I'm sure everyone else did that. I'm sure that's not just me who... Uh, oh, I'm who, talking about in a broader scale. That explains a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so, we are sponsored by Lip Smackers now. Oh, we are. Because after our last episode, I think, where we talked about you in the glossy, glittery lipstick. Yeah. They Someone reached out and just said, hey, if you could give us a shout out, we will send Croiler all the glitter Lip Smacker lip, lip gloss he needs. And they even have, no joke, go to their website, a Disney series uh, for all the different princesses, That's Disney wonderful. characters. So you could get the princesses, or if you want to keep on hiding your true calling, you could get Iron Man or Spider Man. Yeah. Lip no. smacker. Sorry. Not for me. <laughs> Don't know why you're so difficult. <laughs> or why you refuse to embrace who you truly are. Oh, who I truly am. <laughs> oh, A Disney princess. And, wow. <laughs> Who uses whatever the lip thing is? Yeah. I'm going to buy you a... You can get like six packs or I don't know how many come in a pack, but you can you can get those and I'll be very convinced or I'll be very surprised if by the end of that, uh, your use of all of them, because I'll expect you to use all of them, oh. that you won't have tasted them at least once. I won't use any of them. 
Do you use chapstick? No. So we'd established before you don't use lotion, Mm-mm. which you did bring the lotion to me. You brought it to my work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which, thank you, but also that's kind of killing my image, because I have this very bad boy image. I'm sure you do. People see me as this kind of rebel, uh, out on the fringe, you never know what he's going to do kind of guy, and it doesn't help when you walk in and say, hey, I have some high-strength hand lotion for Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly how I went down, too. Yeah, now now I can't, I, I mean, I can't intimidate anybody anymore. And it definitely doesn't have to do with me being four seven. <laughs> All right, today's episode. Basically, we're gonna start off by saying it's a two-parter, right? It's a two-parter. It's going to be essentially looking at two different profiles of jujitsu people. This isn't saying everyone falls into these, but we're going to look at two ends of the spectrum. Yeah, it's a spectrum. It's a range. That's right. You have a range of strategists and improvisers. When I say an improviser to me, this episode will be the improviser. The improviser to me is someone who, when... You're slapping hands with your opponent. You're not thinking. You don't know what you're going to do necessarily. All you know is I'm going to slap hands. And then once we start rolling, I will make decisions according to the stimuli that is being sent to my brain. And whatever they're doing, I will react. The strategist on the other end comes into something. Maybe they've studied their opponent's habits. Maybe they have a game plan. They know this is my strength. This is his weakness. Here's what I'm going to do. So those are the two extremes. Mm -hmm. Anything you'd like to add, change about those definitions? No, I think they're good. Okay. So if this episode, we're trying to like hone in on who the improviser is, the artist. Sure. I like that. I like that. The artist versus the strategist. Okay. Okay. I don't mean like you're an artist, as in you, you're not the guy who comes in rolling who has a really nice man bun and beads around your neck. You could be. Please don't. Be. You don't have to be. I mean, that could be what you just, I mean, we all change as life goes on. In 10 years, that could be you. It's not. Or once the episode comes out and someone photoshops it, that could be you. Uh, or. No. <laughs> by the way, shout out to. Uh, uh, David, one of the listeners for making that If I ever meet video. that dude, he's dying. Like, I know everybody thinks it's a joke, but like, if I ever meet him, he might die. <laughs> I was, I, I was really, really happy because <laughs> I, I thought I should do this. And then before I had to, I, I saw I had a notification on Facebook or Instagram and there you were. Very nice tan, big purple lips i think very very white teeth and just gorgeous highlighted spiked hair and we we i thought it was funny that you actually in the picture i was talking to someone i said he doesn't look that bad with spiked hair i wouldn't recommend it but if he somehow had some medical condition where the doctor said you have to have spiked bleach hair no or you'll die then it wouldn't be the worst thing no it would be the worst thing <laughs> i think taylor could still love you is what i'm oh, getting at well i'm sure she could love me no matter what Ooh, i don't know 
let's not get too carried away. <laughs> We're looking at these these two profiles today. We're doing the improviser. Where do you see yourself? Are you do you associate with either end? Do you see yourself in between? Um, I, I will say that I've shifted a lot over the years. Um, I, I for sure was a, a very um, much an, an improvisation, you know, creative guy early on. Um, but over the years, I've I've systemized a lot of my my approach. But um, I believe that plan plans are meaningless, but planning is essential. So um, I have systems in place for everything, and how I go about executing the systems or which systems I used that becomes a little bit more on the creative improvisation side of things. So, you know, I may have a plan for what I want to do, but it doesn't mean I get to pull it off. So I need to improvise and, and I improvise with a system, right? I bring a new system to the table. So if my closed guard system is not working, I will transition and move on to a different guard system, maybe a half guard or butterfly or spider or lasso or whatever. And then that becomes my improvisation. And now I, I solve a problem with a different tool. And then if that fails, then I, you know, improvise again and I move on to the next system. So you mentioned earlier when you were younger that you were more improvisational. Is that meaning you were more running on like emotions and just... Mm, no, I, I would, you know, because I knew less when new problems got presented to me and I, I didn't, may not have had the best solution or even the the best idea on how to solve them, I would improvise the solution. So I would I would think, well, if this worked here, this might work in this place and, and try it. And if it didn't work, then it didn't work. But um, I became very good at very quickly adapting solutions for problems into other problems. Do you think that the higher you go in the skill level of jujitsu people, you're going to have more logical strategists at the top or more of the creative, like just go with the flow, figure it out as you move. So I, I think, I mean, if you look at white belts, right, white, white and blue belts, they tend to be more on the creative side because they have to be, they don't know as much. I mean, just by default, they don't have answers. So they, they got to come up with something. It's like walking into a kitchen and you have a chef who, there's a chef who's been doing it for a while and sees all these ingredients and goes, all right, I'll put in two cups of flour and one cup of sugar. And then you send the like brand new guy in and go, all right, do something. Well, fuck it. I'm going to put some, uh, mash <laughs> right. some banana up and put a little Tabasco sauce in <laughs> It'll here. It'll be good. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> and you know, and I think as you go up through the ranks, definitely by the time you get your, your, your brown belt, you become much more systemized because you, you, at that point you should have mapped out a lot of reactions and understand behaviors and, and patterns of attack, patterns of defense and you understand where the successes are and where the failures are. So I think by brown belt, you become very systemized, mm -hmm. um, even early into your black belt. Um, but then eventually you get to the point in a black belt, let's say you've been a black belt for a while, let's say 10, 15, 20, 30, or like Marsh or like 40 years, you know? Um, I think at that stage, it, it's just like Neo in the matrix, you know what I mean? Like it's not so much understanding the rules, but he just sees everything. People just see things and they can, they can very quickly flow from one pattern of attack or one series or one system, one guard style or one technique into another very seamlessly because they understand everything, you know, um, it doesn't, it becomes more transient. So I think you go from being creative 
to very systematic to something above that, something past that, where it's not necessarily a hard, solid system is a so much as it is a fluid system where you can easily adapt and easily systemize as needed. So then you can, it's almost like full circle. You hit, after you become the logician, you become like a high speed, almost computer who processes things so quickly that it becomes so smooth that you're almost like back around to, uh, like the, you could just do whatever you want because you you can see all the paths and yeah you- but i think the difference there though like that's where like experience comes in and people don't understand it because there's i'm sure people listen they go well i do that shut up no you don't <laughs> um there's very few people that can do that you know the, the experience level you need to do something like that is, is gigantic and and i think it's easy to overestimate our ability um you know look, look at um so if if a you know, like your chef, the example of the chef, right? So if you, if you have a very, if you, let's say you have a horrible and eclectic selection of ingredients in your, on your, you know, kitchen and you call, you know, a newbie cook and he may, like you say, make something stupid, like bananas in Tabasco, you know, which I'm not certain that's not good as I think about it. It Anyways. might, it might be good. I'm going to try it later. Um, but, it, but you know, if you, if you bring in somebody who's been cooking for a while, who is really, really good, let's say, you know, a local chef who's been cooking for 30 years, he may think, well, this is my options are very limited, but I can make something good out of this. And then if you get a guy who's, let's say like a Michelin star chef, let's say like a Gordon Ramsay or, or not Ramsay, uh, what's his name? Um, Gordon Ramsay. Is it Ramsay? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got it right. Or like, you know, or any other. Oh, it's Gordon Ryan, sorry. No, that's not him. No, that's not the chef? No. Um, but if you get like, um, you know, a Michelin star chef who is obviously above just being a, a good chef, like he's like an excellent chef who's been around, understands, studies culinary arts, right? Um, they may look at the kitchen and they may say, man, I have to get creative here because there's very few options. But what he does with this creativity will be far superior than both the newbie who was creative and the chef who's been around for a while. You know, and I think that that comes down to experience level. Um, you know, it's 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 hard to to just to explain that the difference there. Well, that's a good point that you bring up. Where in order to be an improviser, be able to work to be an effective improviser, an effective improviser, or moving away where you're kind of expressing yourself or doing what you feel would be the right move. You have to have some control. You can't be like a good improviser if you're never in a good position. If you're the guy who's just, if you're just being smothered on bottom, I guess you could go, look, I'm improvising. I'm moving my left hand around in (laughs) circles. Right. Great, man. But maybe like do that in a a way that actually means something. Right. You know, and and what's the the artist that does the paint splotches the real famous jackson pollock pollock yes um you know you can take a two-year-old give him a bunch of different paint and tell him to throw it on a wall and then you know you can have somebody who's studying art who's like well the kid obviously did the same kind of thing but it's not the composition is not the same or this the the you know the colors are not good and then they may try and replicate it Right. And and go, this is much more like Pollock. And then Pollock goes out and does it. And he does it very much like the kid. He's just throwing stuff on there. 
but some for some reason it works for Pollock, but it didn't work for either the kid or the the college student. Mm. You know, and and I think that's experience level, the ability to become fluid above a system to become fluid as a creative um, on the creative side of the scale you have to have a very deep understanding and a very systemized approach to jujitsu in order to be effectively creative when people are starting out and let's say they're listening to this and they're relating to one or the other profile and they're let's say they're going I'm the improviser mm-hmm. Would you try to direct someone to be more of a strategist starting out just because is that the safer route? And then say maybe down the road, once you have a tool belt that you can pull from, you can start improvising. Because I feel like I drift towards the improviser because a lot of times I start reacting. Whether it's better or for worse, when I roll, a lot of times I am reactive. I'm not always proactive, and that's, I know you've before said like, hey, now you have to move, now you have to be the aggressor. I just naturally will fall into reactive. I'll let the person do something, and then I'll try to work something out. Is it setting yourself up for failure if you're taking that position right away of, I'm just going to do what feels right, and then you're sitting on the side going, well, you don't know what's right, so. Well, yeah, I, I, you know, I mean, I think the way I teach is a little different than most places, you know, from day one. Not only are you learning techniques, we're, we're, we're talking concepts or why things work or how are they working. Um, and, and to me, I have no problem with a beginner, a white belt or a blue belt um, being an improviser, if and only if what they're improvising with is the concepts and techniques that they already understand. You know, if you know, if somebody knows how to do an arm bar, the concept of an arm bar is very simple, right? Lever, fulcrum, joint. <laughs> um, if you really understand how the braking mechanics work, the controlling mechanics, what causes it to be most effective, what causes it to fail, and you have a very deep understanding of that arm bar, and you want to apply those concepts to different, you know, joint locks that you're doing, I'm okay with that. Um, what I'm not okay with is thinking that you understand a technique or a concept trying to modify it and trying to apply it to different techniques that have nothing to do with it. That's where failure ensues. And if you, the other thing to be cautious of is if, if early on you're an improviser and you're an athletic person and you come out ahead, it's very argue, very hard to convince people that the results aren't proof of success, you know, because you can have a white belt who's very, very athletic, who, you know, improvises on something and gets a, a janky tap and you have to go to them and say, Hey, that was garbage. Don't ever do that again. And they say, well, it works. That statement, well, it works is not some sort of genius statement is not a proof of brilliance. That's proof of idiocy. Well, and it works. It's not proof of your jujitsu working. It's right. proof that with crappy jujitsu and your athletic ability you made it work yeah and your opponent's complete lack of right in this in this specific situation right so um no i think i think early on um people should try to be more methodical and more on the you know the tactician side of things however to do that you also have to have experience with the system and and systems are usually developed out of creativity, right? Out of this happened, we need to have a solution for it. And then, you know, you improvise and you create and you adapt. 
Um, so they, they kind of have to work hand in hand. Usually people, when they start, they'll fall one to one side or the other. And then the more creative improviser people, they tend to be more successful early on, white, blue, even early purple. And then the people that tend to be more on the tactician side of things, the strategists, they tend to be not as successful until like purple and then purple and above, they become very, very successful. Um, Which that's interesting because you have to be a very special kind of person to, I always respect the people who are those that didn't start to get good and see results until like purple and brown belt. Like you've talked about people in the past where you go, well, this person struggled and got their ass beat all the way up until like purple and brown belt. And I sit there and think that, that would be, that takes a ton of discipline and determination to keep going for five, six, seven, eight years just constantly ho- just listening and going, okay, I will get better. I will get better. It's so much easier for the person who just comes in and does it. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's kind of like uh, Jedi's, like the dark side and the uh, the light side. The dark side, they always say you can, not saying people who do it the other way are, are Sith Lords, although the Sith are always cooler in my books. But anyways, they say like, this is the path that is the quickest and easiest to take because it rewards you early on. Right. The path of the light takes so much longer and it can beat you down mentally. Right. But you're building this really strong base. Absolutely. And and back to your Sith Lord Jedi example. What do you who do you think schooler? Uh Sith Lord or a Jedi? You know when I was a kid I think the Jedi's. Mm-hmm. As I as I get older, I, I, I sympathize more with the Sith. Oh you sympathize with them. Okay. Oh yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Is it when Anakin walks in like uh, what, Revenge of the Sith in the episode like, three down all the kills all the kids, and that is that when you're like, yeah, I've had some rough kids classes. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> no, like you know, like I mean, not to to get too crazy in the tangent there, but you know the 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 Jedi, the noble side of the Jedi, right? It's those are things that you want to be, right? Selfless, you know, but they also they're the extreme selfless, they're the true altruistic, where you also don't love. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't care. You don't, um, you become so altruistic that your feelings disappear. They're not important. You know, they're like, you love everything. Well, if you love everything the same, then there is no love, you know? And I think as we, as I get older, you know, it, while that would be nice to do, I think it becomes more and more difficult. I think we should all strive to love everything, to be altruistic. But when push comes to shove, generally speaking, we protect us and ours before we do others, you know, and I'm not saying that that's something to be proud of, but it's something that we should admit when we're watching the, mm-hmm. you know, the Star Wars. I think when you're a little kid and, you know, Anakin finds out that his wife's going to die if he doesn't do something and he can't find, he goes to the good guys and like, well, if she's going to die, she's going to die. It just is what it is. Yes. I remember you watching know? the exact and thing and thinking... That's an odd thing for the good guy to say. Well, right. And if you're a little kid, you're like, yeah, you can't can't turn evil for, to save her, you know? And then, like, when you get older, you're like, fuck, that's my wife. Right. Like, I, no, I would, you know, I would do whatever it took, you know? And, and, and I think uh, Sauer is a great example of uh, the dichotomy of good and evil and, 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 and the philosophies behind it. And it's not lost on me that as you say this, you sit there dressed in all black. Yes. So you're slowly, <laughs> slowly drifting over. The, yeah. I think if we fast forward 20 episodes, you're going to be sitting here in a hood. 
Hey, and don't, I'll be, and, don't judge me. <laughs> and and I'll, I'll be saying, Croyler, you've gotten a lot more wrinkles in the face lately. And your cackle will turn into more of like the Darth City. It's like, <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> so, all right, I need your ability to get back to like, the so path. Where we, were, we were talking about like, you know, how tough it is. How tough is it for the person who by default falls more on the tactician strategist side of things? Because the improvisers, since they do it better early on, you know, the what happens to the, to the strategists that struggle early on, um, that they suffer. I mean, like, that is something that they do struggle. There's plenty of people that are like, hey, I'm trying to do exactly how you told me to do it, and it's not working because this guy is behaving in a way that you don't know, that, I, that you didn't talk about, right, or that I wasn't ready for. Well, that's because you don't have the tools. Well, give me the tools. So then you teach them a little bit more, right? And they're like, well, I was rolling with this improviser and he behaved a completely different way. As the instructor, how do you keep those people on that path? Well, I, I think that comes down to environment. You know, like we have a very, very healthy environment in our school where I think I, I preach enough and I, I've drilled enough into you guys that the idea is to roll for technical growth and improvement, not for beating each other up or being a tough guy in the room. And I think because the vast majority of the people at our school, I'd say easily 90% of the, the, our students understand that, the, the people that lose, the, that, that get the worst of the exchanges because they're trying to be very systematic early on, they, they are okay with it because they see it as a data point that will be added to the system later. And over time, they become very successful. I mean, we look at guys like Blake, who has only really been training for like a year and eight months. Blake's a blue belt at our school. Yeah. And he, he, he's very much a tactician and he struggled then early on. Like he really struggled and the dude just, he never complained. He never whined. He never had any doubts. He just stuck to the system. He just stuck mm -hmm. to the system. He just stuck to the system. And now the dude just like kills everybody you know competitions in this school and other schools like the guy's a savage what's interesting about him too is he could have relied on his physicality absolutely because he is in good shape he's young he's athletic but he's one of the few people who was just able to kind of like drain almost like take a pill before you roll like drain oh it's like it's like in black panther when he'd have to <laughs> fight for the kingdom they would drain the like essence of the black panther out of him to like level the playing field yeah it's like blake does that before he rolls and he like takes that out and goes i'm just gonna roll based on technique yeah and then you look at him you know less than two years later and he is you know tapping everybody he's mm -hmm. giving upper belts a tough time you know um, and when he loses, he doesn't get up there pissed off and mopey. He just says, you know, what can I do better? You know, um, we did two privates in, a, in the past three weeks. He said, hey, I got these problems I can't figure out on my own. So we work on them. And then, like, we worked on this past Tuesday. Um, and then he, like, like right after class, he's like, hey, I did those things three times today. And I'm like, oh, how did it work? He goes, not quite perfect yet, but it was better than before. And so, like, he didn't tell me, hey, yeah, I got out and I tapped those guys, or hey, I failed and I got tapped. It was just, this is improvement. Mm -hmm. And I think if the tactician sticks with that mindset of I'm looking to improve, they don't suffer as much. And the, if the victory is improving, not the number of taps, the, the how bad you feel going through the ranks diminishes quite a bit. 
And then once they start being successful, once those guys, the technicians become successful, they tend to be very successful. They go from zero to 100% and it becomes very tough to deal with them. If we're looking at advantages for, let's say, the person who has a good skill set to pull from, they can start being a little bit more flexible, creative with mm-hmm. their with the way that they're approaching their roles, advantages they'd have. I mean, to me, one of the first ones is going to be opponents don't know what to plan for or what to expect. Yeah. I mean, how much do you truly know when we're grappling somebody that we haven't met before? Right? Well, I mean, if if we're talking about people that, like we kind of talked about the improvisers being at the higher levels, maybe, uh, that's when it's a be- the best time to use it. You can research someone or have an idea, sure. uh, or at the very least, you can watch like the person compete two or three times before you have to go with them. And if you right. see the same habits, right? Then yeah, so the, the improviser does get the edge of you know the the randomness of it. The improviser, uh, one of the biggest things that they may have is the um, they may break the rules. Um, and that's something you see as a white belt. Like, I think that, I think white belts are a good example of improvisers because they break the rules all the time. Um, so if I mount you, you're not going to shove me off your off of, off of mount because you know if you push my chest, I'm going to armbar you. Mm-hmm. Like you understand that it is a solid rule. A white belt, you may mount a white belt. They don't know that, or even if they do, they don't care. So they, the suddenness of them shoving you off may catch you off guard. <laughs> And all of a sudden, they've gotten out. And it's like, wait a minute, Like that should have never happened. But you've, you're so accustomed, as you go up through the ranks, to play by the rules, that when you get somebody who just doesn't, then it becomes difficult. You know. And I think the improvisers do that a lot. Not, not in as much of an extreme example as the mountain armbar, but I'm sure you know, you'll, you'll see it all the time. And, and the improviser is always trying to, to break the rules, is always trying to create a scramble that benefits them, is always trying to create chaos. They're agents of chaos. And, and if they can create chaos and they're more creative than you, then they are more successful than you. That's a very good point that I wish I would have brought up earlier. Chaos is a huge part of, to, to me, the improviser. Or the thriving in the fog and ambiguity right. of transitioning back and forth so that is that is very big the person i think improvisers do well when there's chaos and they always in like a scramble just end up being like lucky and just finding a spot so yeah they can win in the scrambles in the chaos they can light the match and then find like the submission while the house is burning down (laughs) right And then when you get more on the strategist side, they're trying to control the chaos, right? Put things in order and and understand that they're only going to behave a certain way because of the system that's in place. Um, So that's a struggle back and forth. And I think early on, because it takes less tools to be an improviser, um, you you don't have to know as much. It's understandable why they tend to be more successful early on in jiu-jitsu. Yeah, if you look at the improviser, someone just causing the chaos and then taking advantage of that chaos that would work easily on the new person who does not know how to reorganize and reconstruct right. a situation if you look at the um strat as the improviser as the arsonist and the strategist as the fireman you 
as the experienced person know how to put that fire out a lot faster as opposed to just sending a civilian in there and right. they, get, they burn down and all right. the all the chaos all right enough analogies for now another benefit would be someone who is an improviser often can catch you in very weird positions that they didn't even intend to get yeah pull a submission off you just you you guys again scramble and then they go you're like oh there's an the, arm bar the, that came the from nowhere improvisers are usually the cause for innovation right um so, so if you, if you think about it, it, it always, I use the example of like the sword and the shield a lot. Um, you know, as men, men have always killed each other since the dawn of time. Right. So like, you know, it was hand to hand combat then it was rocks and then fire and then sticks and then, you know, sword. And then it, it was like bronze sword versus steel sword, you know, and then you got a bows and arrows and you have cannon. I mean, basically like you, you, you evolve, right? But you evolve out of a need. So, you know, if, if you have a system that works and somebody comes in and breaks it, an agent of chaos, right? He does throw something weird. If you don't improvise with them, if you don't grow with them, and adapt to their to their creation, you will fall behind, and that person then can basically dismantle your system by creating this chaos. So you then, as the tactician, you then create a new system that accounts for this behavior that you hadn't accounted for before, and then that guy then has to then be creative again because he's not going to beat your system. That's why it's a system, and then you grow and improve your system to adjust for that new change um i mean look at i mean this thing this started back with like holes and and my grandfather right so close guard close guard worked on everybody as far as my grandfather was concerned and then holes was a guy that said hey wait a minute like i can't close my legs around this guy like you know just by guy just by the guy being bigger he caused issues to the system and then you have to improvise you look at half guard butterfly all these different styles of guards they all came up out of somebody creating a situation that could not be solved at that time and then we improved and adapt you know um like the example of 50 50 to me 50 50 is the bane of jujitsu like it's the worst thing in the world it ruins matches but for competition jujitsu 50 50 is amazing it's a great way to stall out matches it's a great way to get a couple points and and chill out the rest of the time and for years, like the rules couldn't even account for 50-50. They didn't even know how to how to score that position. So the rules change and people started thinking of all these crazy creative ways out of 50-50, which then 50-50 had to adapt, right? The guards of 50-50 had to grow to adapt for those escapes. And now 50-50 is far bigger guard than it was, let's say five years ago. You look at Keenan's warm guard with his lapel, very creative, very innovative issue. He systemized it right away, so it made it even more complex. Um, then people started passing it. Little by little, people started getting around it. They struggled, but they figured it out. They adapted the system, and then they understood it, and they learned to break it down. So then Keenan, you know, creates more systems on top of that. You know, he's got the squid guard and, you know, all the other ones that he's coming up with. So the the, I think they go back and forth, you know. It almost sounds like the imp- improviser or the sower of chaos. That's what we'll start calling it. Okay. Is the um, is that the 
life cycle of progress where you have people who are the strategists who create this system and then they keep working on the system until someone comes in and tears it down, causes chaos, and then all the strategists have to like kind of reconvene and then they come back and they start building up around what was once torn down. Uh, do you need those people to push jujitsu forward? If and only if you're only talking about the lower level guys. Okay. Um, you know, Hickson said something in the documentary Choke. I don't know if you've ever seen Choke. Mm-hmm. It's very good. But he says, um, he says, uh, uh, go with the flow. Right. And a lot of people thought that that was poor English. You're supposed to be flow with the go. And he's like, no, no, no. You, you go with the flow. Um, because the understanding is at the highest level, you understand jujitsu and its intricacies very deeply and very broadly. Like you just understand jujitsu. If somebody illuminates you to a new position or to a new scenario that you're not accustomed to, right? An innovator, they come up with a new thing that you've never seen before. Because your, your depth and your breadth of knowledge is so large, that gets very quickly assimilated into your system. And it very quickly goes from being an innovation to a very systemized approach. And at the highest level, you won't stump anybody with a new position. If you look at the the highest level guys competing today, there's nothing you can do to them that they don't have an answer for. Even if it's something completely new and ingenious that they've never seen before, they will have something for it because they can take, there's so much knowledge in them as far as like the depth of any technique, but also the number of techniques that they can call for multiple concepts, multiple points, multiple ideas, and very quickly formulate an answer for the new problem. And the moment that that happens, they've systemized that now because now they know how that works or it doesn't work. If it fails, they help, they will create a new answer for it. And it becomes a systemized approach to finishing it. So I think once you get to the point of like, let's say a, a, a darker black belt, let's say somebody who's been a black belt for 10 or plus years, um, or somebody who just studies, it could be a younger black belt who just studies a lot, right? Somebody who's really, really logical and, and methodical and, and is an addict to the art, they will start systemizing even the things that they can't be planned for. And that's where creativity and experience and systems kind of merge. So you think it's unlikely that there will be someone who comes along and completely oh. stumps and wrecks? Oh like no, the- it happens all the time. No, that, that'll continue to happen. But the that simply becomes a catalyst for a new system. It doesn't remain unique. Okay. You know, um, how can I put it? Um, you are right. The the creator, the creativity, the the um, the innovators, they will by default put you in situations that you may not be used to. But they're they are not aware of how they're doing that, right? And if they are, then it's not a it's not an innovation, mm. right? By definition, they're right. They're systemized, else. right? And then on the other side, if somebody who who is systemized see that sees that innovation they will by default have to account for that in their planning. So at a, at, a, at a simple level, at a very low level, 
I think of the creator, the create, the innovator as an agent of chaos, and the tactician as a train who's got one track that they have to be on, and if they get diverted, they know how to get back on that track, and then they just stick to that track. But at a at a level up from that, it, it becomes fluid. Anything new becomes systemized, and anything systemized will be created and developed upon because they can merge systems and they can merge attack patterns and they can merge behaviors. So yes, at a low level, the the agent of chaos is going to be the guy that stumps people. It is going to be the guy that creates new things because they don't play by the rules. Mm -hmm. And then the tactician by default will be the guy that um, turns those that rule breaking into the new set of rules, into the new laws of jujitsu. Okay. Are there people that come to mind that are kind of the chaos oh absolutely the, the harbingers of chaos the, absolutely who, who do you think like personifies that um like nino shembri back in the late 90s early 2000s he was definitely an agent of chaos he was like a whirlwind of pain who just came out of nowhere and he broke all the rules he did things people didn't think they should be done and he just you just couldn't couldn't stop him what kind of things was he was he doing that were different well i mean it was like uh, he was doing like flying omoplatas and guard you know people would pick him up in guard and he would take their back standing up and which stuff it happens now all the time but it's not stuff that happened back then he was you know doing these crazy inversions that people now take for granted at the time he was doing you know inverted sweeps and and he's he had an incredible incredibly creative spider guard and um butterfly guard um you see guys like um uh, let me see who else was like highly creative. What about uh, you bring him up sometimes? Is it Tedede? Tedede. Tedede was a very Would much you... creative. Yes. Okay. He was an innovator. Nothing systemized about his approach whatsoever. He was a guy that flew very much by feeling and by how can I get to where I want to be. And uh, yeah, Tedede was very, very creative. It's he, another force like that. He He's someone that came to mind when I was kind of thinking about all this because you have brought him up so often and said, hey, look at his stuff. And that's what a lot of his matches look like. Like yeah. he's just he's just creating these scrambles. And he's the just moving. The people who <laughs> he's going against who are black belts who know their stuff just are frantically trying to like pick up the pieces and fi figure build out like, something, uh, right? <laughs> yeah, they, they're trying to build something as he's just like knocking everything down. <laughs> right, right. Very much. He's very much one of those, yeah. Right. Um, you know, and then... Like one of the things that I don't very much like is the whole like drill to win thing. Um, I, I, not, not that there's anything wrong with drilling a lot, but like I said earlier in the show, um, plans are meaningless, but planning is everything, right? If your plans are so rigid, if you're, if you're, your level of systemized approach is so rigid, like this has to work these specific ways, then you don't account for the agent of chaos. You don't account for a guy who throws, you know, something out there you've never seen before. And usually what happens to those people that are not very creative because they're on the drill to win mentality where this pass has to work or this arm bar has to work, this sweep has to work, right? Because I've done it 15,000 times, it has to work. The moment that it doesn't, they can't be creative enough to fix and create a new system right then and there, right? Which would be the highest level, would be the idea to create new systems as needed. Um, but the same way, you can't just be the guy who's just creating chaos for the sake of creating chaos because 
that is going to get you in trouble if you if you're, the chaos you're creating is not big enough to destroy the system that you're going against. Yeah, and if and if you're just lighting fires in the house just to light the fire, eventually you're just going to get caught in the flames. And Absolutely, you're going to die in your own fire. Right, right. All right. Well, that's that's a good place to stop for this segment. I like that. Well done. You went deep on a Thank lot of you. that stuff. <laughs> All right, so we're going to end this episode with our listener email. And everyone, if you'd like to ask a question to Croiler, send it to justjujitsupodcast at gmail.com. Today's email is from Greg. And he said he'd like to get your perspective on how you feel about things like, uh, well, first of all, the subject was tradition at BJJ Gyms. And he wanted to get your opinion on tradition, like things like bowing to uh, Helio before class or only calling the instructor a professor. Is there something worthwhile there or people just doing what has always been done just to do it? But what do you think about that in gyms? Because it varies greatly. Well, I think I think um, I think traditions got started and kept because there was a value to them. At some point in time, there's value to them, right? Um, I think that I think that the way it should be is something that you may consider traditionally calling the, the instructor professor, right? Um, or let's say bowing to to Ilya Gracie, um, or bowing to instructor before class, or you know, step bowing on off the mats. Those are things that if they're if I force it on you, so if I if you come in and like hey, you have to bow every time you walk on the mat, so you have to like call me professor or you have to just say sir and no sir, then then they lose their value. Um, I think that if I am somebody that requires that stuff, I shouldn't force you to do it. I think you should feel that that you need to respect the place enough to do it. You know, and I don't think that. Any instructor says, no, you have to do this. So I don't know. You know what I mean? Like if you don't respect the the things that you're doing, I mean, why would you bow to, to Ilya Gracie? Well, because he, he, he's not with the founder of Jiu-Jitsu. Okay, well, do you feel like he deserves that respect? And if in your school they bow to Ilya Gracie and you feel he deserves that respect, why aren't you bowing? Right now, if, I, if you come in, I'm like, you need to bow to Ilya Gracie. He's the founder of jiu-jitsu. And you're like, well, I don't give a shit. I'm on my week trial. Yeah. Right? I barely... Is it jiu-jitsu? I was saying jiu-jitsu. Right. And I'm like, no, you have to do it. Then now it, it loses its value. Because you're not doing it out of respect. You're doing it out of order. Like, I ordered you to do it. Not because you respect what he stood for. Right? And, and, and I think... Um, I think there is value to some of it. You know, I do think that um, the, the idea of you know, calling your, your black belt a professor, um, especially if they require it, um, is important because, uh, the word professor is different than in English. It's not an English word. Um, professor in English is like a, like a PhD in college or something like that. You know, uh, uh, in Brazil, professor just means teacher, like sensei in Japanese just means teacher. It doesn't mean master. So, um, calling your teacher teacher should not be a problem. Right now, if you don't feel like they're your teacher or you don't respect them enough to be your teacher, then why are you going to that school? With that in mind, I don't have anybody ever call me professor. If they want to call me professor, they can. If they don't, they don't. Um, and, and, and the reason why that is is because I got my black belt when I was like 19 years old. Um, 
it may just make me feel old to be called professor. So I just told him, call me whatever you want. <laughs> um, now I do have guests from out of town or when I do seminars, they, they refer to me as professor and I don't correct them. It is a, res- a term of respect is a term of endearment and, 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 and I can appreciate that. Mm. Um, but I sh- I'm also not going to walk around and say, no, you call me professor. Like, right. Then it loses its value. It, it's not the point. So I, I think traditions shouldn't be forced on you. I think you should try to understand where they're coming from and see if you agree with them. And if you do, then then great. And if you don't, then you can always explain to, you know, to your to your professor, to your instructor, to your coach or you know or maybe find a different school if you don't think you can be explained to them as to why you don't feel like you should do certain things um you know like when i go to to my to my professor school right to master stambowski school um he's not a professor anymore he is a grandmaster you know so i you know i always refer to him as master or grandmaster never as a professor and and he's never told me you got to call me you know master stambowski He's never even said, hey, you got to call me Professor Stambowski. I just do it out of respect. The dude has taught me a lot, you know, on the mats, off the mats. He has be- he's gotten to the level of becoming jujitsu. And, and I can respect that because that's something that I want to get to at some point. I want to become, you know, I want to become so entrenched in jujitsu that I am jujitsu, you know, and... and is he your Yoda or is he your Darth Sidious? Hey, I... Wait, Darth... Am I using Darth Sidious right? Is he the old guy or is Darth Sidious... Darth, Darth Sidious is the, is the old guy. Oh, yeah, okay. So is he yeah. your Yoga, uh, Yoda? I don't know. It depends which side of the, which side of the force I'm on. I know. Right, that's, right? that's why I was curious. <laughs> um, no, so, you know, like, I respect him enough to go, hey, you know, this is... Like, anytime I'm in his school, like, he's my, my grandmaster. He's my master, you know. Um, anytime I talk to him about to other people, you know, like... It's always like Master Stambowski or Professor Stambowski, you know. Um, and, and I think, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, he, he did, he posted something a while back that got him some heat as far as like the, the geese, you know. He, he's the example of like, hey, if you respect your school, if you like your school, you should be wearing the school's patch and you should have a clean gi, right? And everybody was like, oh, he just wants to sell more patches. That's a very American view of things. Um, and there's a different relationship with teachers in Brazil than there are with, with instructors in America, which we can get to in a different podcast. But um, he's never told anybody to wear patches in his school. He just says, if you love your school, you should. It'd be no different than buying a Notre Dame t-shirt because you like Notre Dame football, mm-hmm. you know. And it's not about the money. You know, nobody really makes gets rich off selling patches. But if you want to represent a school... If you believe what the school stands for, if you believe the team, the family that you're part of, why wouldn't you want to fly their banner, you know? Um, so, yeah, I think traditions are in place. They got started for a reason. Whether you do them or not, I think falls down to how much you understand them and how much you respect where they're coming from. Yeah. Where did you get the tradition of after each class where you have everyone line up and like wash your feet? Is that, did that come? That's not a thing. Is that from your grandfather? (laughs) That's not a thing. I don't do that. Oh, oh, so you just made that one up? No, I I didn't make that up because that doesn't exist. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Before we leave, we're getting close to an hour. So I I, I hate to break that hour point. So I'm just going to finish off with a, just your quick horoscope because it's a good thing to fall back on. Oh my God. That's still a thing. Oh, of course, this is this is a thing as long as the stars are in the sky. Oh Jesus Christ! All right, today is July fifth. 
your senses heightened today, dear Aries, and you can find yourself in a romantic and creative mood. That, that's, we've been talking about creativity all day. Wow. Are you feeling romantic also? No. All right, well, how, oh, hold on. However, there can be some moodiness and restlessness as you are hungry than usual for affection, but you may not be particularly satisfied with what you get now. Ooh, do you need affection? No. This is getting a little weird, but I'm just going to keep reading because it's almost done. This is due to, oh, all right. Don't worry, it has nothing to do with you. This is due to a Venus-Mars aspect that can temporarily serve to contrast your needs and wants. Avoid jumping too quickly to conclusions and even to action and try to enjoy instead to enjoy the moment. Distractions are plenty today and you'll need time to refresh yourself after which you can enjoy the more playful elements of the day. In truth, you're getting some mixed messages from Venus. I'm going to need to like take a shower after listening to this. It blame Venus. Come on, Venus. Stop sending these mixed messages. So you get mixed mes- messages from Venus, which is encouraging your love and comfort simplicity. And Mars currently exciting your spirit for adventure. Someone can someone could be passive aggressive now, and you can be impatient for an answer. Okay. So just be aware of Mars and Venus for the okay, rest of I'll, the day. Yeah, I'll, I'll keep uh, I'll keep an eye out. With that being said, for our American listeners, happy Fourth of July. For those around the world. Look out for Mars and Venus. If you're an Aries. If you're an Aries. Yeah, maybe if you're a Pisces. It doesn't matter. It, yeah. it, you're good. Well, it matters. <laughs> I think, I think it sounded, when you said that, it sounded like you're saying it doesn't actually matter, but. No, that's what I was no. getting at. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll continue this later. Goodbye, everyone. Bye.